Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Ray Johnson. Ray is a scholar activist and registered somatic movement therapist who chairs the Somatic Studies in Depth Psychology doctoral program at Pacifica Graduate Institute. The author of several books, including Elemental Movement, Knowing in Our Bones, and Embodied Social Justice, Ray teaches and trains internationally on embodied activism, somatic research methods, and the poetic body, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. So with that, hello, Ray. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Looking forward to our conversation. So I've been really enjoying, you know, learning about the work that you do and reading a number of your articles that, you know, span the range of your research on uh, somatic education, somatic work, and also the poetic body. Um, but before we get into those specific topics, I wanted to talk about your own personal story. Um, you share some of your own kind of um, own personal story in, in one of the articles that I read, and and you come from a kind of almost idyllic sort of liberal arts world, it seems. And so it's, I'm, I'm curious sort of what led you, you know, based on that experience into the work that you do. It's a, it's a good question. Um, but, but before I sort of answer that piece around why did what was actually a very happy upbringing um, in many respects and a very uh, nurturing childhood lead me into territories around social justice, mm -hmm. given that it's mostly people with a history of oppression and marginalization who feel compelled to do this work. Right. Um, I think it's important maybe to back up a little bit and, and just speak to why I include the personal mm -hmm. in my scholarly work. Um, and it really comes from a, a, a long tradition of feminist scholarship that understands personal experience as always emerging out of a socio-political context. Right. And that that part of what, and I'm speaking here as an academic, and a, a, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool academic, that part of what the academy does to um, perpetuate sort of a disembodied yeah state of affairs is to is to position the personal against the professional right yeah. and so part of why i always talk about who i am even though there's part of me that cringes knowing that you know first year students are going to be reading the intimate details of my gender identity or whatever um, it, it feels to me like there's something really important about insisting that those two things belong together mm -hmm. yeah so I wanted to just say something about that because whenever someone raises it with me, this idea that, you know, um, that there's a personal narrative at the beginning of so much of what I write and that there's a chapter on my body stories in, in my book, Embodied Social Justice, um, it, it feels important to me to just help people connect the dots in terms of why I do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, term, so in, in, in answering your question, why would someone whose early life experiences wouldn't necessarily propel them into the difficult work of social justice take it up? Um, I think the answer to that is is a question that that's really intrigued me um, and and has and has been I, I think what is what is starting to emerge as a position of mine in terms of social justice work 
is that so much of our oppression and marginalization is invisible mm -hmm. and that we still tend to think of issues of justice as um, between monolithic opposing forces where you've got an oppressor and you've got the oppressed and that the, the groups of people who are locked in these power struggles, that all the members of one group are easily identifiable as members of that group, and they are only members of that group, and they are set against the members of this other group. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, thankfully, I think, that idea, at least in terms of how scholars are understanding power relations seems to be, we seem to now have moved past that, and we now recognize that, that the issue of oppression is far more complex, far more nuanced, and far more subtle yeah. than I think historically we've been tending to talk about it. But at the same time, I don't know that those ideas have actually metabolized through our system so that we're actually going, oh, yeah. When I read the story of someone like me who had creative, interesting, intelligent people for parents who loved me and I grew up in an environment where I, I was in, you know, really in an enriched environment for someone like me, um, why would I come out of that childhood with scars that took me 30 years to recognize as the traumatic imprint of oppression. Mm -hmm. So in, in lots of ways, that's been my journey and recognizing that the, the symptoms of trauma that I experienced in my own life and, and more specifically in my own body were actually symptoms of trauma. It took a long, long time to get there. And I'm talking back in the 80s when even the connection between trauma and oppression wasn't articulated, and trauma was something that happened really on, only to military veterans. Right. It was just in the early days when even feminists were just beginning to say, actually, no, trauma also is experienced by survivors of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And that early work of, of Judith Lewis Herman and some of those folks who were talking about trauma in a different way. So back in those days when I was first starting to try to make the connections myself, it took a long time to figure out that as someone who identifies as genderqueer, someone who identifies as neuroqueer, someone who identifies... Neuroqueer? What is this? Oh, well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very cool. Um, <clears throat> that, that my position, even though you wouldn't look at me in my life, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't ever have dreamed if you knew me growing up as a child, that I was accumulating a series of paper cuts mm -hmm. that over time added up to um, a lived experience of pain, distress, disconnection, marginalization, disorientation, loss of meaning. I mean, this is not the life path of someone who, when they were a teenager, was actively suicidal. And yet that was what happened. 
And so it was a mystery to me how someone like me, who had so much advantage, mm -hmm. could still have accumulated so much damage. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if this is true for me, what about the people with whom I am working, for whom their early childhood experiences were riddled with acute trauma and deprivation? How can they be managing and how can I help? So in many ways, it was, it was a matter of me recognizing that if I was experiencing it at this level, the people with whom I was working were experiencing that pain and that distress at a, an order of magnitude that I couldn't even imagine and that I had a duty to help. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate, you know, what you said. There's a couple of things that really kind of resonated with me. One is, of course, the the um, the critique of the sort of academic paradigm where, you know, there's this pretense towards objectivity that doesn't include the personal. And, you know, of course, there we already see an example of the kind of separation of mind and body, mind, intellect, mm -hmm. academia, body, sort of private world, keep it out of the, you know, keep it out of the professional objective, so-called objective work. And, you know, part of where the starting point of much of your work is, you know, what otherwise seems like a sort of obvious statement, we navigate our experiences through the body, we mediate the experiences of the world through our body. So even though we understand that intellectually, it's quite another thing to then understand that somatically. And, and this touches on, you know, this, I love this concept that I see in your work, somatic illiteracy. So I'm wondering if you can talk about somatic illiteracy based on what you're saying and, and unpacking here and how that relates sure. to what we're talking about. Sure. Yeah. Um, this is, this idea is not mine. I, I'm drawing on a, a, a long lineage of of scholars across a number of disciplines when I say what I'm about to say, which is that hmm, hegemonic social structures, and so I'll, I'll name some of them, um, patriarchal societies, capitalism, um, militaristic societies, that the, the sort of the Western model um, that we've all been immersed in growing up and, and throughout the last several centuries um, works best when we're not in our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and so, although I, I hate to, I mean, give, particularly given what I just said about how power is nuanced and complex and how we all have access to some of it and that it's a, it's a mistake to position uh, uh, them as yeah. an oppressor and us as the oppressed. At the same time, I think that modern industrialized nations, in order to succeed, need to support people who, who are the producers, who are the workers in that society, to not be in touch with the lived felt experience of their bodies. If we were, if we were awake and sensuous and connected with how our bodies felt in the moment, in the environment, connected to our emotions, which I consider a special subset of sensation, yeah. that we wouldn't tolerate the living conditions that we not only accept and tolerate, but we actually 
um, are actively involved in reproducing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> but, but I, I think there's a way in which many of us living in modern Western industrialized societies have been hoodwinked into believing that we are mostly just what we think and maybe a little bit what we do and hardly at all how we feel. Yeah. Yeah, that really it sort of reminds me of a of a situation because, you know, as you're speaking about and proposing, I understand a kind of, you know, somatic literacy, an ability to be able to speak about what we're experiencing in our bodies with each other, you know, if we can, in moments of conflict, rather than, you know, vilify the other person or, or, or you know, basically, um, rather than understanding what we're feeling or communicating at the level of what we're feeling, we're just sort of like battling the sort of at the intellectual level, then there's, it sort of stirs compassion. You know, when you see someone for what they're feeling or as they're feeling, instead of, you know, uh, this sort of enemy that you're trying to kind of win over intellectually, it, it, it brings, you know, it just brings a kind of, I don't know, a sense of intimacy with the other person that wouldn't otherwise be there. And I'm thinking of a specific situation where, where I can remember a falling out with a friend who we were arguing intellectually about things yep. like oppression and, and really what we were arguing from, you know, the, the reactivity was, was triggered by our own felt sense of, you know, being, uh, you know, having some kind of, you know, kernel of trauma there. And yeah. we, but we couldn't speak about it. We couldn't get the conversation to that, that sort of somatic place where I think we could have probably, the, the, the triggering could have been dissolved in some sense. And, and maybe there would have been more of a kind of a compassionate kind of gesture towards each other rather than yeah. a battle. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, that's a lovely example. And I think it, it, touches on so many things. So to, to say a little bit more about this idea of somatic literacy, which I have stolen outright from Paul Linden. Um, it's not my term at all. Um, but it's, it's such a useful idea that, I, that I've you know borrowed it many, many years ago and continue to work with it. To hook it back into this idea that we live in a world where the powers that be actually don't want us to be in our bodies mm -hmm. because there would be, you know, there would be mutiny <laughs> if we were. Yeah. That, that one of the ways in which that gets perpetuated is to, to keep us illiterate about our own sensual realities and that part of what happens, and I'm sure you know this from your own experience, Part of what happens when we drop into our sensual selves is that there's this softening of boundary between self and other and self and environment. And there's often uh, an upwelling of compassion and empathy, both for myself and my experience. Ah, oh, sadness. Oh, yeah. Oh, sore. Oh, yeah. Um, and that if we can go into that somatic experience with that attitude of compassion and empathy, then what happens by extension with that softening 
of the boundaries between self and environment is that we begin to light up those parts of our brains that are wired for empathy. Yeah. And we begin to read the distress and the pain and the discomfort and the confusion and the fear in the bodily experience of the person that we're in conflict with. Yeah. And we go, oh, oh, you're in pain. Oh, okay, so am I. Let's talk, right? Let's talk about that. Let's have that be our common ground, yeah. that we actually both are in pain about this. We have differing ideas about how to get out of the pain. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have differing ideas about what got us into the pain. But the fact of the matter is, it's not you hurting me or me hurting you. It's us hurting one another on that big scale of things. Yeah. When we take the long view and how can we support one another? Mm-hmm. How can we use the privilege that we have, the resources that we have? How can we, and this is, I think this is a one of the really useful tools about body-centered trauma work. How can we support one another to co-regulate our, our dysregulated nervous systems so that when we're jangled and tired and fried and frustrated and impatient and activated, how can we use our own capacity to take a breath and to find our feet? And maybe if we're able just sort of touch into our own heart center a little bit, if we can do that, we automatically, if the other person is available for it, we automatically support the other person that we're with to do the same because that's how we're wired. Yeah. That's intercorporeality. That's this idea that we are always, like it or not, members of each other. Yeah. Oh, I love that it's idea. how our nervous systems and how our bodies are built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, our cognitive capacities can do marvelous feats of abstraction and imagination. But where they're not serving us is when we use our intellectual capacities to, uh, to remove ourselves from that felt experience of being with one another so that we're actually not able to touch into the compassion and the sense of deep embedded relationship that's always there. Yeah. Whether we're happy about it in the moment or not. Yeah. So uh, I want to come back to what you're saying right now because I think it connects nicely to something I heard in one of your interviews, which is um, the idea of, you know, two fundamental areas that we neglect are the recognition of the unconscious and dismissal of the body. But before we um, talk about that, uh, you know, one of the kind of fundamental sort of, you know, axioms of your work is that oppression is traumatic. And and while I think we can, you know, we can generally understand what that means, what does that mean sort of at the, because it's a very sort of specific sort of um, way in which you unpack that. So can you talk a little bit about how oppression um, takes the form of trauma in the body. Yeah, sure. So that so that when when I describe this this experience of being activated and dysregulated, 
we've got some idea of what does that actually mean and what are some of the components or the driving factors in that activation and dysregulation. So um, I want to backtrack a little bit just to say that when I first started doing this work, um, I searched for years for some research evidence in the scholarly literature for my own conviction yeah. that oppression was traumatic. <laughs> um, and my conviction wasn't just born out of my own, my own clinical experience, although it started there. Um, every time I spoke to another um, therapist or practitioner working with, with people who, who were members of marginalized social groups, and I said, you know, I think oppression is traumatic. They would kind of look at me and go, well, duh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, of course it's traumatic. We know this. We've known this for years. But there was no research evidence for it. Right. Um, so one of the wonderful things that's happening in the field of traumatology and in the, the work that's being done around social justice is that there now is. I can now write an article that references that idea and cite an in, you know pages if I wanted to of research evidence that says actually even those people who have no known history of acute traumatic events in their lives they've never been in a car accident they've never been mugged they've never right mm -hmm. If they are members of a marginalized social group, if they've experienced oppression in their lives, we can be reasonably certain that the same number of them will also meet all of the clinical criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, there's been some research by um, two fellows in England named Scott and Stradling that suggests that people um, who experience oppression actually score higher on those PTSD scales mm. than people without a history of oppression but who have experienced a single incident acute trauma. So I just want to say that by way of background so that you can say that I'm, it's not just something I believe to be true and everyone else goes, duh, it's yeah. we actually yeah. now have some research evidence exactly. underneath yeah. it. And so what that means specifically is when I'm, when I'm working with someone who has a history of oppression, I begin to notice and, and pay more attention to a couple of things. Um, one is this idea of the nervous system being dysregulated, in particular being either hypervigilant like paying way too much attention to what's happening out there, search and scanning the environment for threat, which is hugely metabolically expensive and exhausting, but it feels necessary. Mm -hmm. So I watch for that. I also watch for its inverse, which is hypovigilance, which is I'm not paying attention to anything. I'm oblivious. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Almost a learned helplessness response. Right? I can't. I can't be tracking all of the threats that exist for me in my world walking down the street. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to zone out. It's the only way that I can, in, in a way, it's the only way I can manage being in the world is to be oblivious to most of it. 
Um, I watch for constriction, and there's a whole beautiful um, set of, of research and scholarship in social psychology back in the 80s in nonverbal communication that really started to um, pull out how um, being a member of a subordinated social group begins to close in our worlds and close in our movement. So lots of work on the, the use of interpersonal space so that we know that people that have more social power in a given setting take up more space and feel the right to have access to that space. People with less power have less of it. So their, their kinospheres, the, the area around them where they feel they have a right to move, yeah. contracts. Personal bubble. Their personal bubble is smaller, yeah. and it's not a personal preference that it's smaller. Right. It, it's a social mandate. Yeah. Yeah. You don't take up, you don't get to take up as much room. And what happens with that, of course, is that movements get smaller and more constrained and less expressive. It's not across the board because there are always cultural variations um, in nonverbal communication that need to be taken into account. But these are some of the things that I start to look for. I go, ah, small, collapsed, mm -hmm. attentive. I'm going, ah, okay. But they haven't they haven't told me anything about um, having a history of trauma, but I know that they have a history of oppression and I'm going to be paying attention to that. Yeah. So it's one of the ways in which this idea that oppression is traumatic starts to light up um, a series of clues and questions for me that I wouldn't be asking if I didn't think, oh, trauma. Am I seeing indicators of trauma in someone who said to me, I have no trauma history? Mm -hmm. I love this, you know, way of of looking at it because I feel like a lot of times, you know, when when you're when it is suggested that one should kind of somatically investigate the the the, the main factors are are you you know noticing anxious or depressive energy, which of course is a you know a real kind of lens to look at it, but it almost seems there's something individuating about it, right? It's sort of like that anxiety. And if it's anything at all it, contextual, it's contextual in the sense of the old Freudian way, like, you know, it's your mom or your dad. And so there's an imprint that happens early and early in your age. It's not so much sociopolitical. Um, and for me personally, you know, I can definitely, as I was reading your work, it was making me really think about, because I certainly have, you know, uh, trauma that I've worked with and a kind of very intense somatic experience of, of contraction around my heart space that I often feel in meditation. And um, and so uh, uh, thinking about what you're talking about in the form, for me, heteronormativity and, yep. and the way that that has been continuously kind of reified in my life and gestures or things that people say that, you know, just completely are, you know, regurgitating that whole experience. Um, but then, but then I also had experiences in family life that would have been also traumatizing. And then there's also the question of like, um, you know, generational trauma. And, mm -hmm. and so I guess my question, the reason why I'm bringing this up is when those things start to intersect, uh, at an individual, individual level, what is the function of discerning between the different, you know, streams of trauma. Is that important? Because at the level of my own body, I don't, I don't have the kind of, oh, well, that feels like the trauma of the heteronormativity. That's the trauma from the family. It's just the kind of storehouse of my own somatic uh, uh, triggers no. or my own somatic kind of 
um, map, I guess I can say. So, you know, what, what is the, what is the, how do we begin to discern and what is the function of the discerning between the different, um, uh, forms of trauma? Yeah. What's, what's the value in differentiation? Yeah. Right. So, um, just to back up to say that, that, before the value in differentiation, I think the value is in making the connection. Yeah. Going, oh, okay, oh, this too is traumatic. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's important for um, a really critical reason, which is one of the things, in addition to um, supporting us to be illiterate about our own somatic selves, um, there's also, particularly in the Western medical model, this, this, strong, strong tendency to both pathologize and to individualize. Mm -hmm. And we see it in psychology as well, which is, oh, you're struggling. It's about you. And it might be about your family. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, But we almost never, except in only certain subsets of, of psychology, do we ever go, Actually, no. Yes, that that may be true, and that may be true, but it is also true that the pain you're in is in some way related to the socio-political context in which you live, yeah. and in which you were raised, and that that makes a difference. And it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that piece of oh, actually, I need to, I need to not own that. Yeah. And that not owning that is actually psychologically and emotionally healthy. Yeah. And being able as a, as a practitioner to support that move, not as a failure to own my own stuff, but as a way to go, uh-uh-uh-uh, no, 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 that's not, that's not on me. I still have a responsibility to transform the effects of that on me. Yeah. But it's, I didn't, I didn't invent this. Yeah. And so I think that's that's the reason to make the connection yeah absolutely the value in the differentiation in going okay which piece is it and i i absolutely agree with you that somatically it's just pain Mm -hmm. right it's like who cares who cares where it came from it came from all those places like let's just get on with it the value in differentiating is when it comes to actually moving past a certain phase of healing and beginning to recognize that I need to change my relationships with the world in order to prevent this pain from recurring and from this damage from going on, both continuing to allow myself to incur damage, but also as a way to prevent an unconscious um, perpetuation of the damage on other people. Yeah. So when I get to that place of, implementation in my relationships of my own healing process, then it becomes important. Oh, I actually need to find a different way of orienting to and relating to my father. Ah, I actually need to um, find a different way of orienting in public spaces where most of the people in the room are white. Oh, I actually, and so that's when it actually becomes really useful to make those distinctions. Where, where are the sources of the pain and where does that damage um, continue to recur 
if I don't shift how I'm approaching it mm-hmm. and how I'm, and I use orientation um, very deliberately because I think there's a way in which the process of healing allows us to approach the environment with a different somatic organization. And I, I don't like to be prescriptive around this. There are folks who do nonverbal communication stuff and they say, okay, you want to empower yourself, put your hands over your head and, you know, do this thing and you'll feel better and you'll, you know, your orientation to the environment will be healthier. If, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there, there may be some there may be some value in that in limited situations, but it's it it doesn't actually address the complexity and the interdependence of our nonverbal relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's far more useful rather than saying, okay, in order to shift this formerly oppressive dynamic with this members of this group of people or in these contexts or with this family member, I find it far more helpful to go, to just support people to find a way of organizing themselves in their own bodies that feels authentic and engaged and safe and grounded and centered. And that as they find those qualities within their own bodies, that already is a shift from how they've experienced that relationship in the past. Mm -hmm. And it shows up. I just, over the years, I've learned to trust that our capacity to read micro movements in others and to discern the relational meaning of those micro movements is really quite incredible. And so I've just learned to trust that so that when people are embodying themselves differently and when they're oriented to the, to the environment differently, when they're oriented from a place of authenticity and compassion and respect and dignity for themselves and the other person, that just shows up. It just creates, it cre- I'm going to use that intercorporeal word again, it creates an intercorporeal field or creates an opportunity for an intercorporeal field that feels much different than the one up, one down, hierarchical, oppressive dynamics that were there before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the, I'm curious to hear a bit about, you know, the, the ways in which you help other people cultivate that, um, Mm -hmm. that kind of somatic intelligence. Um, and you know, as I was, as I was listening to you, um, say this, it reminded me of an instance, you know, in, um, hopefully my family won't listen to this episode, but, uh, (laughs) they never do. They don't listen to this stuff. Um, they, uh, you know, uh, there's, uh, there's always like when I go home to, I always give hugs and I started to give hugs at a certain point and the men in my family always, you know, they cringe when I give them a hug. And so then I, then I got to this place where I, you know, when we got to the point where I had to hug them, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm even before I'm like stressing out about it, about getting into the scenario where I, I, do I hug them or do I go back? Do I retreat to the hand, you know, and then, Mm -hmm. and then there are certain women in my family that hug from the side. So they yeah. won't, you know, they won't bring their hearts together. They look, put one arm out and then they don't, you know, and, and, and so, you know, in that instance where, 
you know, this is just from my personal experience, where I uh, am in a position where I can sort of see perhaps the there that you know this expression of trauma in the body in one way yeah. or another. Um, you know, what are come some kind of skills that faced with that I can you know resist or can hold space for it and not be triggered into my own kind of form of you know pain or, or reactivity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. No, that's a that's it's a really good example. Um, finding language for what I'm about to describe is always a challenge. So I'm going to I'm going to give it a try and if if I get there you let me know or if okay. if if it's not working, also let me know, and I'll find some other language, um, because we're talking about we're talking about ways of being in the world that that are not language based, and so it's always a bit of a stretch to find the words that that fit and and evoke the kind of thing that I'm trying to share with you. So if you could imagine that moment of approaching a family member with this idea that the way in which you have historically said hello has felt problematic for you, either because it reified gender stereotypes or it, it created a sense of distance and formality that felt artificial or that you wanted to change, whatever that is. In that moment of, of approaching that family member, you may have a representation of an action in your mind. For example, a hug that would shift that dynamic. And it's in, in a way, I might liken it to the recommendation of some nonverbal communication scholars who go, put your, just do this, put your hands above your head and you know, do the victory cheer and you'll feel better. Like a <laughs> Like a hug would fix this, mm -hmm. right? Instead, I might suggest that as you find yourself approaching them in that moment of saying hello, to listen to your body and let it guide you in terms of, if I, what I want is connection. If what I want is to actually be present in my body with them, in a way that invites them to be present with me if they can, mm -hmm. just let your body do that rather than walking in with the agenda of a hug because the hug's going to change this. The hug agenda. <laughs> right? The hug agenda is real. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make, does that make sense to you? Totally. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that's what it I sounds a little, about. it sounds scary, but <clears throat> you yes. know, to really honor what I'm feeling in that situation. But I guess, you know, in most situations, I think I would probably feel like uncomfortable because I would be making them uncomfortable by hugging. I, I think at one point I just started imposing the hug <laughs> in yeah. my, on them. And, and that because I felt, you know, I was more, a little more arrogant when I was a bit younger. And so it was like, no, they need this. So I just forced it on yeah. them. And then, yeah. and then it got to a point where they expected that of me, but then I started to be more sensitive to their sort of, you know, that, that sense right. of, um, limitation or whatever it is. And, yep. and so I, I, as a way of respect, I think I started to retreat and then it, there was, and then it was like confused, you know what I mean? So, of course. yeah, of course, here comes Jacob brace for the hug, 
right? And so you felt the bracing. Yeah. And that wasn't what you wanted. So you backed up thinking that they would unbrace. But now they don't know what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what we're talking about um, is, you know, this idea of gesture. We've, you know, you've been talking about this throughout the question of gesture or the way in which gestures and postures express mm -hmm. and support dynamics of oppression and inequality. Um, mm -hmm. And you've been giving examples, you know, um, uh, with regards to this one, I one one of them that you mentioned a lot in your work. I think you started, you sort of touched on it, but um, specifically, you know, people in context of a work environment, you know. Um, uh, particularly women, you know, being touched by their superior, but not being uh, afforded that same kind of gesture. Um, and, and so, you know, th this makes me think about when we're kind of, when we talk about posture or we talk about mm -hmm. gesture, it makes me think about yoga. And of course, many people on this podcast, um, practice yoga or practice some contemplative practice. Yes. And, and, you know, in, in the more progressive, when we look at yoga, at the opportunity of yoga progressively, we can see it as an opportunity to kind of queer the body to maybe use one of your terms, mm -hmm. um, which we can mm -hmm. talk about if that's, if, um, if you want to, but this idea for me of disentangling ourselves from culturally entrenched postures and gestures. Um, but, you know, it also seems to me as I was reading your work that that yoga could also reify some of those gestures. And I'm thinking specifically the kind of, um, you know, yoga body, which is, yes. which sort of connects to conceptions of beauty, um, you know, and, and so it made me, it, it, it led to the question for me of, of how conceptions of beauty that might play out in a, in a yoga practice, how those are also implicated in, in structures of oppression. Yeah. Okay. I actually think you've named two really important territories. The first is body image mm -hmm. and how, how um, social norms around appearance um, become coded yeah. in particular practices. And I think you're absolutely right. There's no, I mean, there's, it's, it's no secret if you read um, any of the popular literature on yoga that people are now paying attention to what they call the yoga body mm -hmm. and how, how um, limiting it is for most of the world in terms of race and ability and, I mean, just all kinds of, it's, a, it's just an incredibly narrow body norm, a, a narrow and restrictive body norm. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, that really pleases me when I dip into the, you know, to the work that's being done in the in the world of yoga, is that there seems to be some real grassroots um, movement to shift that. <laughs> the other territory that you're naming, though, and it it actually I think fits in with something that you said earlier when we were talking about the hug, and how and how it um, how how not doing that, how just approaching someone and listening to your own body and listening to theirs and being present in your own body while you do it, how scary that is. Mm -hmm. That's the piece I, I want to say a little bit about now. One of the things that I have a lot of, I have a lot of yoga teachers and practitioners and yoga therapists in my, um, in my, in the student body, in the, in the program where I teach. 
And so I make a point when I'm describing somatic work to them in the first year to say, not everything that you think of as somatic is somatic. I said, so you might think that dance is somatic. It is sometimes and it isn't. And I said, same is true for yoga. Not all yoga is somatic. And some of them will gasp and go, what? What do you mean? Um, and it's been interesting to me over the years how many students who have very accomplished um, yoga practices and, and yoga teaching practices will come back to me and say, you know what? I think I've been doing it not actually in my body. Mm-hmm. While I've been doing it, I was really good at it, but I wasn't actually feeling myself from the inside out. Yeah. So, um, the, the, the piece that I think connects to all of this, which is um, how do we make our, our everyday lived experience more conscious, more intentional, more awake, more engaged? How do we be with one another in a way that is more tuned in, more available, more responsive? I think anchors into this idea that we need to gradually build tolerance for being inside our own skins. Mm -hmm. And then once we've built a certain amount of tolerance in being inside our own skins, and for some of that, for some of us, that takes an incredibly long time and is a completely arduous and mind-filled journey. And, you know, I get that. I'm not suggesting that this is easy for any of us and for some of us because of the damage that's been done. An incredibly difficult, challenging task. Still, I think, cultivating that capacity to, to live inside our own skins on a sensual level. And by that, I mean not just, yes, I can feel, I can feel my quadricep, but I can also feel it in a way that makes the, the meaning, the tone, the emotionality, the symbolism of it also available to me. Mm-hmm. All of that. Mm-hmm. So... Once I've, I've developed some ability to do that for myself, my next task is can I be in my body in the presence of other people? And it's, it's interesting that, that we have this sort of built-in capacity to be in a room full of people and yet not with them at all. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this in a yoga studio. I've seen it in a dance studio. I've seen it with dancers who are interacting with one another in incredibly physically, objectively intimate ways, but who, are actu- who actually need to retreat from their own felt experience in order to be in that close physical contact. Yeah. So I, th- I think that just taking those baby steps and being able to go, Yep, I can actually take a breath and be in myself with this other person and I might actually be able to look them in the eye for a minute. Like that's a big that's a big deal. Most of us don't do that at any point in our daily lives on a regular basis because we're socialized not to. 
And because, because the dynamics that have grown out of this disembodied hierarchical oppressive system of social relationships, because of, of that's the system that we're in, it's actually not safe, yeah. right, to do that. So I, I, I really appreciate what I'm suggesting mm-hmm. and the difficulty and the enormity of what I'm suggesting. I'm, at the same time, I'm going to say, I think that's the way out. Right. So. So what's um, the, so what is the role, you know, you're, t- uh, I want to go back to then something that I brought up a minute ago, um, sure. because it seems to touch on kind of the role or the potential role of the unconscious in all of this, in this work, yeah. archetype, image, imagination, and dreams, um, you know, and, and you're talking a minute ago about body image. And of course, this yeah. is an image that is in somehow, you know, it's a kind of a prevailing image or a paradigmatic cultural image that's sort of enforced mm-hmm. on us uh, in, you know, or externally imposed upon us in, in one way or another. And so how do we leverage, you know, archetype, image, imagination, and, and dreams to kind of, um, to work against that, right? To, to mm-hmm. work against that mm-hmm. sort of whatever the kind of dominant image is. Yeah. Oh, man. What a good question, and it, it it goes in many ways. And and I'm I'm aware of the fact that you ask these good questions that I don't quite get around to asking because they're so good that I wind up in all these other territories. So <laughs> just just to let you know that I'm aware that that's what I'm doing. No, you're and, answering these great. You're one. You're doing wonderful. <laughs> um, I I think I think there are a couple of things, and 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 I think the first thing that it's important to say is that the use of archetype and image can be a potent tool and it's not for everyone. Yeah. And I think, I think sometimes for those of us for whom it is remarkably effective, it can be easy to forget that that's not everyone's way of processing information or organizing information and moving forward. Sure. So having said that though, one of the things that, that I think is remarkable about the way our bodies are created and constructed and designed and and operate is that when we give our bodies, and, and I'm thinking specifically of a particular movement or a particular quality of movement, that when we give step-by-step detailed, precise instructions to ourselves, to our own bodies to do something in a particular way, it's often far more difficult than to simply imagine the end result, right? We just, then we can just do it. Mm-hmm. That we have this capacity to use image as, as a blueprint for our bodies to follow. And that um, some of the best teachers of movement, whether they're dance teachers or yoga teachers or Pilates instructors or whatever movement practice, even even people who teach creative improvisational movement, the best teachers, I think, often have a capacity to elicit an image, to create an image through their own verbal direction that people understand can take into themselves and go, oh, oh, you mean this? Oh, yes, I can do that. And I think that that capacity of image to organize our bodies 
is the same thing that works with body image and body shame is that if we if we're able to allow ourselves to have an imagination of something that when we imagine it feels good and right and real and true and liberating that we can use that internal image to begin to shape um, our outsides, whether it's how we look or how we wear our hair or how we move. But we can use that inner image of liberation as the guide for our the manifestation, the external manifestation of our liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that kind of what you were asking? Yeah, totally. And it sort of makes me, uh, and I'm wondering if you think this is true, that, um, you know, one of the maybe arguments against, you know, leaving out this kind of work in the process of um, uh, working against oppression would be that, you know, we assume that the the ideal manifestation will just emerge once the oppressor is smited out, you know, going back to kind of oppressor-oppressed, um, you know, narrative we were talking about at the beginning. Um, yeah. But, you know, what I sort of hear you saying um, is that, you know, this kind of, uh, this this accompanying imagination of what is there when that, you know, what, as this kind of, you know, dissolution of the oppression or dissolution of the somatic impact of the oppression takes place is is necessary, that there needs to be a kind of, um, or does it need to be? But it's helpful, perhaps, to imagine in some kind of way, in a poetic way, even um, the um, this sort of I don't know ideal mapping of the body or somatically balanced um, uh, uh, image of the body. Yeah, um, and keeping in mind a couple of I think important things. One is that that even the the selves that generate that image are also a product of the societies that we live in. That there isn't the perfect ideal image of a liberated body. Right. That that, the the only way to know for ourselves, I think, uh, is in, in terms of, is this an image that will serve me and not harm others? is how does it feel? The other thing that's I think important to to recognize is that in that unpacking and that deconstructing of all of the imperatives that we've had to ingest about how our bodies are supposed to look and move, that we we will in some way almost always be producing an ideal for us that is not going to serve us all the way through our lives. Mm-hmm. That, it, that it gets to change mm-hmm. and it gets to evolve. And um, one of the things that, I, that I'm, I'm so impressed with when I watch the, the progressive liberation of the transgender community is what I see as such in, at least in, in some ways and in, in ways that I don't see in other communities, a sense of play. Mm-hmm. 
that this idea that that my body and my body image are mine to play with yeah not mine to create the perfect expression of my identity with yes yeah and that it gets to change and that we get to change from one context to the other and from one week to the next and it's all okay Mm-hmm. And to not, as we're in that process of self and mutual liberation through our bodies, that there's no fixed endpoint, mm-hmm. and that really what we need to be attending to is not is this the right way, but how does this feel? How does it feel in me? And when I am this way with other people. If there are people that I can ask, how does this feel for you? What do they say? Mm-hmm. And and how do we how do we manage that and be creative and you know generous with one another as we do that? Mm-hmm. Are we talking now about? It feels like we're talking about the poetic body, which is a, a kind of notion that you talk a lot about. And so I'm wondering now, um, you know, as we get towards the end of our conversation, if you could kind of tie that, I mean, we're already doing it, but how does, you know, freeing the poetic body work toward greater, you know, a greater embodiment of, of social justice? Yeah. I guess, I guess why this idea of the poetic body is so important to me and why I, why I consider it such a, a useful tool in the project of of self liberation and and social liberation is because there's something about a poetic approach that allows me to make meaning of my experience without necessarily having to change it in particular ways. Mm-hmm. And I think the best way I can explain it is, is through an example, and it's actually through an example of the felt shift in my body when I write a poem. Mm. I can be in incredible distress, confusion, despair, depression around a particular situation in my life. I've got a problem with something I can't solve, but I'm knocking my head against the wall, and ah! Right? Yeah. And if I can get to a place with that problem where I'm ready to sit down and write a poem about it, what happens for me is that there is, there's like this magic alchemical process of distilling my experience down into potent symbols Mm. that although the problem is still there and I haven't done anything to address it in the real world, the way I'm holding it and the way that it's occupying me feels different. Yeah. I'm still in pain, but it's a pain that's tolerable and bearable and, in, and inspiring in a way that it wasn't before the poem. Mm-hmm. So I actually use poems to solve problems through my body. And a poem is just one example. People dance to do the same thing. They create art to do the same thing. They create or play music and they do the same thing. It's that process of same problem, different relationship to it. Yeah. 
And I think that's the only way that we can bear the fact that we will likely in our lifetimes not see an appreciable dent in the huge injustice that lives in our world. Yeah. We're not likely to live long enough to see the end of war. Right. For example. And I think the only way we tolerate the fact that we're always going to be living in a world where if you're awake is to know that the world is in pain is to have that capacity to transform it so that it's tolerable without shoving it down and pretending it doesn't exist. Being awake to it, but in a way that doesn't hurt you. Yeah. Well, and also it seems like, you know, and we've talked about this a bit on the podcast before, is that, you know, this, the a kind of sustainable social justice or, or, or you know, it can't just be external work. It has to be contemplative some way in order to, you know, even in the context of my relationship, so say I join a cause and I have, um, uh, you know, uh, a kind of relationship with the people that are involved in that cause, there's still the kind of reactivity that is triggered by my own traumas, even in the context of those relationships with those people, um, yes. which isn't, you know, isn't necessary that that kind of work isn't supported by the the task at hand so it's like you know by doing this work then you're able to kind of show up for these um you know other political socio-political engagements in a more uh, awake mindful way yeah i mean i would i would and this is maybe sounding a little bit extreme but maybe you'll understand what i what i mean when i say that transformative embodied approach to social justice coming into those situations where you've got an objective agenda for social change but coming at it from a place of being in your body and being attentive to relationship is the thing that i think will will help prevent social justice communities from becoming snake pits mm. what do you mean by a and snake they, pit <laughs> <laughs> what i mean what i mean by a snake pit is that when, when people with a history of oppression come together to right a wrong in an objective way, they're bringing their own histories of trauma with them. And they're bringing that same level of reactivity and sensitivity and hypervigilance. And to the degree to which that's unconscious in them, they will perpetuate it in those same circles. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. And so there's, yes, there's that. It's a way of making our social justice communities more just. Yeah. Right? And there's this other piece, which is, I think that unless we do the grassroots, somatic, micro-sociological work of transforming the wounds of oppression in our own bodies, and then by extension into our own embodied relationships with others, I think unless we do that work, no amount of macro sociological institutional legislative change is going to last yeah. because we keep reproducing the inequities at the grassroots level yes. and we will just rebuild those same structures mm -hmm. unless we address it at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. That's such a beautiful statement to close on. So this has been a fantastic conversation, Ray, and um, thank you so much for your generosity and for sharing all of your 
incredible work and wisdom. So as we close, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about um, uh, you, things that are coming up for you and perhaps how people can learn more about your work. I know you have a website. Um, yeah, so anything you want to share, programs, retreats, trainings, uh, workshops, anything you'd like to share? Sure. I mean, mostly my day job is being an academic. Yes. Um, but I do have a webinar um, coming up in January um, with ISMETA, which is the International Somatic Movement Education and Therapy Association, on um, embodied approaches to research. So for listeners who actually have an interest in how we can make our research into this work um, more genuinely, authentically somatic, um, that might be of, of interest. And you can find out information about that on the ismeta.org website. Ismeta, can uh, you, will you yeah. spell that out for us? I-S-M-E-T-A dot okay. org. Yeah. Um, and... Um, Various other things going on, but the next one that might be of interest to your um, readers is an embodied consciousness um, symposium immersion um, coming up in October in Berkeley. And you can find out more about that through the Embodied Flow uh, website, um, Dr. Scott Lyons. Um, it will be m myself, Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen, um, Judith Blackstone and Teresa Silo um, as some of the, the main teachers, but there will be other folks joining us um, as well, and that program is expanding every single time I talk to Scott. So it's, it's shaping up to be a really interesting um, and diverse event. Amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I will be there as well. Um, I think I'm moderating a panel, but we'll see. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and I'm yeah. interviewing Judith Blackstone tomorrow, so that's very exciting. So. Excellent two dynamic, uh, wonderful interviews this week. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you, Ray. My pleasure.